everyone, I'm Michael Frazes, Portfolio Manager at Frazes Capital Partners. This week, I have a chat with Etty Amager of Axis Partners. Now, Axis is active across multiple areas of finance, from real estate to investment funds, uh, but I'll let Etty talk about it in his own words. We also discuss a little about volatility and real estate. I hope you enjoy. Hi, Etty. How's it going? Good, mate. How are you? Uh, good. So maybe you could start by telling us a bit about Axis and what you guys do here. Yeah, um, I guess uh, Axis Partners, I mean... The best way to almost describe us is one of those old school merchant banks and the bulk of what we do, we have partnered with a select group of fund managers, offshore fund managers mainly. We also do have a domestic fund manager that we represent in the Australian market and essentially we raise capital for them. And right. they, yeah, that's across an array of strategies, private equity, Global equities, you know, growth value, um, obviously Aussie equities with our Australian manager, property, we've done VC in the past as well. So just essentially an array, an array of asset classes that we that we cover. And what we do, we go and speak to Australian investors across the institutional space, whether it's pension funds, you know, multi-managers. We also speak to wealth managers as well, um, family office, ultra high net worths and very importantly, asset consultants as well. So we, we've got a, a deep network into that Australian investor base where we can um, access capital for these managers. Right. So what are the asset consultants? Are they for the local investors and will they write reports on the foreign investors that come here, foreign managers? Yeah. I mean, there, there are a number of asset consultants in Australia. Um, some of them are globally based. So, for example, Towers Watson, um, you know, they're a global asset consultant, but they do have a strong presence in Australia. And um, some of them are domestic-based, like Jana, which is essentially the, the largest um, asset consult- Australian domiciled you know, asset consultant with over, I think they're probably over about 400 plus billion in funds under advice. And they essentially consult mainly super funds, and being you know multi managers and you know sometimes some, um, some 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 corporate some corporate funds on their investments. So yeah, they write reports. They do the research. They will essentially go out and search for the best managers that they believe that clients should have in their portfolio and um, do their analysis on them, do their DD on them, and then present that to the their clients. And of course, it's you know at the end of the day, it is it's, you know up to the client whether to put that manager. Um, on board or not. Yeah, so they are very important because they they essentially can act as, as gatekeepers to these to these funds, to these investors. And um, sure. yeah, and for a fund, for a fund manager to have good networks and good access into that asset consultant space. And if you actually get rated by one of these, for example, Jana, it theoretically does open up a lot of doors to to institutional investors. Right. And how much of what they're looking for is performance versus all the other things? Yeah, good good question. What what are they looking for? What are what are they looking for? I mean, it can differentiate between asset class, between um, your client. You know, it, one thing's for sure, you have it has to be different. You know, right. you can't just be another global growth manager who's come into town who has average performance, been in benchmark but not shooting the lights out. Whose strategy is pretty much the same as the other hundred thousand global value managers or global growth managers in the right. world, and expect to get a billion dollar mandate on day one. Um, there's no differentiator there. So, an asset consultant or any investor essentially would need something that 
they may be able to access through your strategy or whoever this um, fund manager is that they can't access anywhere else. So that's definitely one thing that they're looking for. Like, yeah, and that'll lead to a high rating, or that will lead them to even just look at you at the start. Yeah, I mean, that that will definitely get their attention. You know, right. I mean, these asset consultants need something. They need something to go to their client and say, "Wow, mm-hmm. look, I've got this strategy which I've seen from Scandinavia, and they have this exposure, and these are right. the reasons why we potentially could be, you know, rating them." Interested in that, yeah, yeah. And essentially, look, they, they will they will watch. Of course, what we've seen typically it's about three years. They like to have a minimum, you know, three, three, five year track record. That's very important for them. And of course, as well, it has to have a portfolio fit in their client's portfolio. So we've seen before amazing strategies right. with returns that have just shot the lights out. However, they just could not find a space for their clients in the in their portfolios. Like so that'd be just they just do global equities, deep value. You know, there's just yeah, well, is that what you mean, or do you yeah. mean they're doing something so niche that? Well, for example, um, you may be a PE manager, right, right, from New York, who comes to Australia and has a chat with one of the asset consultants, and you have a brilliant strategy, brilliant track record. However, the consultant's client, the super fund, has a lineup of 40, 40 already PE strategies. Yeah, it's it, and they may they may just say, "Wow, I mean, you guys are great, but we just can't fit you in our current portfolio." I mean, right. yeah, our, our returns are decent. Are pretty, you know, they're they're reaching the goals that they need to reach. Um, they've allocated almost fully to to that space within their portfolio. They just can't, you just can't fit. And so, right. so it could just come down to timing. I mean, that PM manager just came in at the wrong time, and maybe hopefully they come back, you know, in a year's time in, in in another fundraise, and maybe they get the right timing as well. So. I guess this is what I'm saying about there's a lot of things that may yeah. yeah that may actually that people need to look into when it comes into like you know getting getting in front of these asset consultants. Right. And so, what are you hearing from family offices, institutions, you know, the local investors that you're speaking to? How are they looking at the market at the moment? And what are they yeah, thinking? Yeah. Good. Good. Good question, Michael. Uh, I guess we can start off with the family offices now. Right. Family offices have the luxury to sort of hold cash. Yeah. And so this is for people who don't know, family offices, they're typically second, third generation. That's right. That's you know, they've made a lot of money in some business, some industry. And now they've set up an institutional framework where they basically invest, protect capital. That's exactly that right. That's yeah. exactly right. And they, essentially they've used that platform to help diversify their their family money. Because you know a lot of the families in Australia specifically have uh come from you know a property background or resources background and they've built up these essentially fund houses in order to diversify their assets. So what I was saying before, they have the luxury to hold cash. So coming from last quarter, for example, where the volatility was through the roof, people weren't sure what the market was doing. Um, um, there were a lot of managers who were um, either shooting the lights out or getting smashed. What I saw speaking to these family officers where they were just holding back a bit, they were just holding back, holding in cash right. um, or holding in an asset which um, wasn't, affected by volatility directly. Like bonds or illiquid stuff, that's, real that's, estate. That's right. That's yeah. right. And just seeing, watching, watching right. where it is. And I spoke to a couple of family officers last week about that, about a couple of other asset classes. And essentially they said, look, these asset classes are great, but we just want to see how the market goes before they start deploying that capital again. Because these family officers, you have to, um, you have to think here that 
there are a lot of them who are in capital preservation stage. Right. Um, so volatility in the market doesn't really help preserve capital. Yeah. Um, so holding it in something that can actually perform within those volatile markets is, is, is interesting to them. Or there's holding it into assets which um, are cash-like or bond-like or you know something, something like that. Now, in terms of institutions, I mean, they obviously don't have the, the luxury to hold the amount of cash a family office may, may be able to hold because they have to allocate to a certain asset class. They've got their portfolios. They've got their return objectives for their fund um, or you know, for their super fund. And essentially, they have to, they have to make their money work. So whether, it's, whether there's volatility through the roof or whether there's no volatility in the market, they've got to allocate the, the capital. And there are some super funds out there who are generating in excess of $500 million a month in terms of capital flows. Right, in terms of inflows. They just have to invest it somewhere. It has to go somewhere. (laughs) It has to go somewhere. So they've got an issue where markets are, well, just take in the last quarter, for example, our markets were sort of going haywire, but they still had to look at, okay, where are we going to put our money? Like where's where's the best fit? What what they're looking at, it depends on each fund because, for example, if you look at host class, you know, their member base is quite young, right? So their risk tolerance is a lot higher, hence they've got a lot more exposure than more traditional funds to PE, alternatives, you know, closed-end sort of funds. You compare, compare that to some other fund managers with, with an older member base where their um, their risk tolerance is a lot lower. So they may be a lot more interested in yielding instruments, right. you know, fixed income type instruments, stable cash flow type strategies. So it, it depends. It honestly depends on the, the investor the investor base or, or the investor appetite. But one thing's for sure, ever since the Royal Commission came out, obviously with the, you know, combined that with the pending elections, there has been a spotlight on the superannuation industry, especially in the advice right. realm of the superannuation funds. And that sort of put some of these funds, I, I guess, put their thoughts on investing on hold a little bit because they want to address what's happening on the governance side, on the compliance side, on, on the advisor network. And, you know, until that is is sorted, until that is is um, is stable, that's when they start thinking. Okay, now where can we allocate right. these assets? But in a nutshell, look, they're always looking. At the end of the day, as I said, mm. they've got to put their money somewhere. These super funds are growing exponentially, right. and they have to allocate somewhere. Yeah, well, it's interesting going back to the family offices that are holding a lot of cash. I mean, obviously, there's been a strong rally at the start of this year, and it's broadly been missed by most active people. People who can kind of shift those exposures. Mm. You know, funds went into October, you know, went close to their maximum long, then cut their beta to, you know, I think it's currently 30, but went as low as 14 or 15. Mm. Um, so that's 14 or 15% and then missed it. So I wonder what happened to the investor class that's sitting on the sidelines, that rally continues, you know, because usually when people are this far underweight, that's generally a good time to be investing because sooner or later those flows will return. Mm. And there's also like, as part of that, there's also an interesting feature at the moment in the market where there's actually been withdrawals from investors you know, in the SP 500 mm. over the past six weeks, the market's rallied hard, but people are pulling their money. But what on earth is going on? You know, it turns out that like companies are buying back stocks that could be pushing it up, but really it's probably just people who are short who have to buy back. You know, there must be a lot of trapped shorts at the moment. So anybody shorted throughout October, November, unless they did it more or less at the start or at the very top, you know, they're all now underwater. So there's a good chance that they get trapped. And mm. so I wonder what happens to those investor base that are sitting on the sidelines in cash. Like, could they sit inside? in cash for extended periods of time? Or, you know, as the rally, is it more like as prices rise, confidence will return and people will deploy that money? Because yeah. if so, then this rally has probably a lot more legs. Yeah, yeah. I mean, 
they're not going to, these, these firms aren't going to send cash forever. I mean, it doesn't, they, they have to put their money to, to work, of course. Right. Now, obviously, each family office has had different exposures to, to property, to, to alternatives, to, to liquid to liquid assets, and it comes down to what their return rules are. Um, and again, it comes down to whether they're in a capital growth stage, capital preservation stage. Um, however, I think it's, it's more so they just want to see what, what's going on in the market before they make their decision. Right. So, for example, one, one specific family officer who I was speaking to last, last week, they have a fair amount of money allocated to closed-end funds and they essentially have, I mean... That, so this is a fund that doesn't have monthly liquidity or quarter liquidity? That's right. Is that how you describe it? it? Yeah. Think of it like a private equity fund, right? Right. You in a seven-year, seven year, ten-year lockup. You mm. can't get your cash out, essentially. So what they did, what, what they've done is they pulled money out of some underperforming more liquid strategies, more liquid fund managers. Now they're saying, okay, where can we redeploy this cash um, in, in the best possible way? Volatility was a pretty interesting asset class. What's your take on it? Uh, sure. So it's been a pretty interesting asset class for a few years. I mean, the whole volatility thing kicked off you know, after 2008 when you know, the VIX spiked four times. Everybody's, what on earth is this asset? It's gone up four, five, even six times intraday. When everything else is going, you know, pear-shaped, is there any way to like buy this? And it was about then that um, Nassim Taleb came out with his book, Black Swan. So everyone was really interested into tail hedging. You know, like, there was no better timing for a book than to come out with a book like that, you know, in the midst of the financial crisis. Um, so basically got people very interested in investing in that. Uh, so it turns out the VIX is just a number, right? It's just calculated based on average option prices according to a preset formula. You can't actually trade that. You can obviously buy all the options. Um, but then you can only buy those on a specific date. So what you can do with like any number is you can basically set up a futures market around it and trade that. So that was kind of the idea that we landed on. VIX futures has been around for a while. The step that people took after the crisis was to set up an ETF. So just something you could buy and sell like a stock that tracks the volatility indices. Now, what they did on the other side, so if you bought this ETF, and the ETF provider then bought futures on the back end. So this was probably the worst performing asset class, you know, pretty much ever, ever invented. It was down like 99% and then dropped like another 99%. You know, it's that, it's that kind of numbers. I don't know, kind of remember, don't know what they're up to now. But it was shocking because what it turns out that you actually, to take that bet, basically people wouldn't give you that bet for free, you know. So each future generally would be higher priced than the current future. I'm not sure if that's clear, but basically you have to pay monthly to hold this position. Yeah, and right. it could be, it averages, you know, 5 to 10% a month. So that very quickly wipes out all your capital over 8, 9, 10 years broadly what happened. So some people then were like, okay, if this is such a terrible instrument, why don't we just take the other side of that trade? Maybe that'd be a great instrument. And that's when you got the inverse volatility ETFs. So these were things that basically went up when vol went down. And these were very volatile. I mean, they halved a number of times, but they're also extremely highly performing for a very long time. So went up 30, 40 times. I think top, I think bottom to top was about 35 times. So it was a huge increase in value. And obviously that pops up on everybody's screens. So people are looking, what is the best performing instrument? It's actually a pretty interesting screen to see what turns up. You know, what was the best thing to own, worst thing to own? Usually there's some good stories around that and sometimes investment opportunity. So the way I was running my strategy for the last few years was effectively short this thing. So basically you'd be long stocks and then short the inverse volatility ETF. Now that turns out to be a much better way of playing the game than actually buying normal volatility ETF. Because as time progresses, this one would expand in value and you could add to your position knowing that when vol eventually mean reverted, you'd get all the money you kind of lost back and then much more. And it was also very, it's kind of like, I guess with investing, 
you're trying to trade any of these instruments, it's really important to have something you can get in and out of at the right time. So it's why kind of shorting equity indices is such a tough game because it's so hard to get in. You basically have to get in right at the top and get out at the bottom. You know, it's very hard. If the equity indice goes down 5% and you're short, what do you do? You know, it could be the first 5% set, five percent of 50 or it could just bounce back in three or four days. You know, it's very hard. Whereas this kind of instrument it generally collapses in value over 24, 48 hours. So I found it very relatively easy to take profits on that and then reinvest that in stocks. So you fast forward to 2017 and this thing just took off in the investing mainstream. You know, people set up funds based around owning these, these inverse fixed ETFs. And as nightfall is day, these things blow up. Kind of around when Bitcoin crashed. That's all right. Yeah, it was just that kind of, it's probably that peak speculative frenzy. I mean, the, U- the US indices made new highs in October. Mm. But remember in January, people were just so desperate to get into the market, desperate to buy Bitcoin, desperate to buy like the best performing assets, which in this case was this inverse volatility ETF. And then sure enough, in one day, it lost 99% of its value. Um, so that's pretty good for us in the start of the year. The problem was is they basically wound up the instrument. So you had to find a different way of playing it. And there were definitely ways to do that. But broadly, for whatever reason, in October, which was a very severe fall, you know, 20% top to bottom in the S&P, uh, the VIX didn't move very much. So we had a ton of optionality based around 20. And that was by far, you know, the biggest we've ever run that trade. For whatever reason, the front futures just kind of hit that 20 point and just stayed there, which is kind of interesting. And obviously it was a shame for us because we we're very much relying on that to cover the rest of our portfolio. If it did what it did in January, which isn't absurd seeing as the market fell twice as much, it would have paid off 30 or 40%. So it's kind of a, a bit disappointing that it just kind of floated there and sat there. I think there's probably two reasons it did. I think the first is it just that trade just worked so well for five years. It was such an effective hedge for us that other people must have been in the trade. So we probably didn't see that because we'd always been doing it, but there must have been a lot of people who had just started doing it. So perhaps that was one of the reasons why the trade didn't work. I think perhaps another reason is it was a very strange sell-off. I mean, it felt very mechanical. People were talking about robots and machines. What they really mean is... um. There's probably two kind of species of investor that we're selling. Uh, and you kind of know what people are doing in hindsight. And most of the selling is done through investment banks. So investment bank research departments generally have a pretty good idea of what the flows are. And so one of them were volatility targeting funds. So as volatility goes up, these people reduce their equity exposure. As volatility goes down, they actually increase it. In effect, that means you kind of, they generally sell low and buy high. But basically, once you have a few big vol- volatile days, like a 4% down day, they'll generally cut their exposure. It could be hundreds of billions of dollars of equity just being sold in the market. That was probably one group of people. Another group of people were the momentum investors. So as, you know, one of the classic strategies to be long stocks when they're above their 200-day moving average and sell them when they're below. And there's, there's many different variations on this. Uh, you know, you could use a 25-day moving average or 50-day moving average, but there are actually momentum-following machines. Sometimes they do really well, sometimes they don't. But as, as equity indices fell, these machines or flip the sell button themselves. And mm. you've got, again, hundreds of billions of dollars in these strategies. Now, what's interesting about both those two strategies is that none of them involve options. And so one of, the theory, one of my theories as to what happened is there was kind of a break between the link between, I guess, equity land and option land. So lots of kind of sellers that didn't actually drive that fix higher, much to our kind of disappointment at the time. Mm. It's kind of easy in hindsight to see what happened. It's still bizarre that in a quarter where the S&P dropped 20%, you know, the front future barely moved. You know, for money, it's certainly not something that we were expecting. I guess it's worth mentioning that, you know, we're predominantly an equity fund. We've traditionally generated almost all our returns through long-term investments in equities. The kind of hedging has always been a bit of cream on top. It's really what gives you cash to invest and add to your positions at the best possible times. Um, but ultimately, we've always made almost all our money through, you know, picking the right stocks and being in the right companies. 
And you know, there's a, it's just that classic market thing, right? It's like the stocks are insanely volatile, but the underlying companies generally aren't. Yeah. You know, the company today is roughly the same as it is yesterday. You know, but the stock might move one, or almost certainly will move one or two percent every single day. You know, and how much has the stock increased in value? Probably not that much. You know, if you think about their annual profit, their annual value creation, divide that by 365, and that's the difference between today and yesterday. Mm. So what we're really trying to do is ride through, you know, those extreme volatile swings and just like basically clip that value creation every day. And in terms of how that leads to outperformance, basically if you buy things that are creating value at a faster rate, which basically means they're cheaper, then you tend to outperform over the long term. That's broadly been our experience. But obviously, it's the equity market, you know, it can move a lot and day to day that the most important thing is to keep an eye on the companies and make sure they're, they're doing their job. That's right. That's the nature of the beast. Yeah, definitely. It is just an interesting time at the moment. I mean, there's a lot of recession indicators flicking orange at the moment, you know, especially in the bond market, I'd say. So, you know, for example, there's one of the classic uh, recession indi- uh, indicators, the twos, tens, you know, difference between the two-year treasury and the 10-year treasury. And that's down at 14 now. So probably jumped to 350 and it's just been selling down the entire of the last 10 years. Um, and typically when that goes below, that almost certainly means a recession you know, in the near future. So the fact it's so close is certainly something to be aware of. In terms of you know, how people should position from now, you can probably do a lot worse than treasuries. I mean, they're yielding 260 basis points. In many parts of the world, you know, those yields have gone negative. So there's a long way down from 260 to zero. And obviously as yields go down, the bonds go up. And you basically get paid carry to hold that trade. So it's quite an interesting way of you know, looking at things. It's probably why some of the risk parity portfolios have performed you know, quite well because those yields have come down, even as equity markets have rallied. It hasn't been seen in the bond market. Uh, so why don't, we, why don't we hear more about you, Yeti? So you've got a blog, uh, Suits and Kicks, where you impart your uh, fitness wisdom. Yeah, yeah. I guess um, to digress from uh, <laughs> the uh, talk about volatility, yeah, Suits and Kicks. Um, it's a blog which um, I recently started, launched. Um, I guess it's been in the works for a while. I've had a lot of people ask me or come to me about staying fit, healthy within the corporate world, especially obviously within finance as we work in, work in the financial services industry. And they were, they were asking me questions such as, what do I eat? How do I juggle the, the workload and eat right? And how many times a week do I need to train? You know, g- general questions. And I was essentially just saying what I believe that's helped me. And it got to a point where I was like, you know what? I'm getting more and more of these questions. I yeah. think I might just create some sort of blog or some sort of platform where people can just have a look and, and um, read about it. Yeah, I should add here, Etty is a fitness model. So what's your what's your Instagram for the for people who can't see because they listen to the podcast? Well, I mean, it's just my name. Eddie Amagot. <laughs> that's, that's right. That's right. Um, I mean, look, I've always been into fitness my whole life. I'm very fortunate enough when I was growing up in high school and early university, I played soccer, football, and very fortunate enough to play pretty high level, made the Australian schoolboys. Um, what was that for? Football? Yeah, that's right. I didn't know that. Yeah, Congratulations. Right. Thank you. <laughs> that's right. Yeah, so made the Australian schoolboys. We went to... Japan. I played in Japan for a little bit, and South Korea as well. I mean, then I was playing state league down here as well, and yeah, it was good times until I snapped my kneecap in in half, and that was that, that was, was the end. 
it wasn't directly the end, but yeah. um, it it heavily contributed to my ability to perform at what, how I was performing before. And very uh, lucky enough that my parents instilled in my head that university was very, very important. And, but um, just studying the whole way through, even with that's know, that's potential right potential football career. Yeah, well, that's that's right. As as much as uh, <laughs> as much as I wanted to sign for you know Arsenal <laughs> or Real Madrid, uh, my parents was very adamant that you are getting yourself a degree before you do any of that you know fortunately enough i had that so when i got injured and i, I still had that backup um of an education yeah. and anyway fast forward to now so that fitness background has always been with me you know performing at that high level and i'm a very strong believer in the correlation between physical health and your ability to perform in the workplace and um, without a doubt you know we hear time and time again of highly successful men and women um, within the corporate world or, you know, doctors or psychologists or whatever industry, you know, entrepreneurs who are working 100-hour weeks, you know, who are burning the candle at both ends and, um, yeah, making a lot of money and being successful in 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 their given employment. However, the health is is terrible. A lot of these young, and I say young, you know, 30s, 40s, you know, even 50s, these people who are who are performing at the highest levels in their workplace, yet they are just ignoring what damage are actually doing to their bodies. And I've always thought these people who are performing at a very high level in their chosen field in the workplace, how much untapped potential could they have if they actually just had more energy? Had more energy by eating healthier, by going to the gym, going for a walk, going for a swim, whatever it is. How much more? output could they actually bring in you know they may be successful now but i just think how much untapped potential that could potentially have so i essentially you know started the blog so i can get that word out there to people within my industry to anyone out there who is struggling or wants to really have a look at how they can balance both worlds and i personally am very fortunate enough that i've been doing this for a long time that it's part of my lifestyle you know i cannot function in a way if right. I don't at least get like 40 minutes, 30 minutes of just some sort of physical activity, whether it's gone for a walk. It'll be every day. I mean, it doesn't Those have days. to be every day. And this is and this is this is the the issue which I've seen. A lot of people just do not have, and I say a lot of people within our world don't have enough knowledge around it. They think it's binary. They think that for them to be healthy, they have to give up work or they have to give up you know, certain things in their life. It doesn't have to be like that. You don't have to work out every single day. You don't have to be a quote-unquote gym junkie. You don't have to eat like an absolute athlete every single day. You don't. I don't work out every single day. But the days that I don't work out, I am conscious of what I eat. I have right. a drink now and then. You know, I have cake. I have pizza <laughs> now. Like, it's, it's, you know what I mean? Um, yeah. yeah, some people... So, what's the difference? So, obviously, it's probably... You know, I guess in finance, most people just come into work every day. It's almost like a there's like that low level of stress. You know, you get your transport into work. You've got like office environment. Mm. You know, I think maybe what are some things people can do? Like, what's like the obvious things that people are doing wrong? Yeah, well, for for, for example, I'll give you the one of the easiest things people can do. Right, if you if you commute to work outside the city, say it takes you thirty minutes, public transport, or you know, you catch a bus, for example. I know people who are very, very busy, so they find it hard to actually get time in to do some sort of physical activity. So they actually jump off the bus a few stops earlier and then walk the rest of the way. 
Right. Is that enough to make a difference? You know, yes, to, it, is. it is. It is. It is. That, that extra 10, 20 minutes um, a day compounds like anything, like an investment, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it compounds and it builds up and it helps you, you know. So the, the ideology of going into the gym and slamming yourself away on the cross trainer for 45 minutes, it's not the way to think about it. It's little things that you can change throughout your, your working day that can compound and build up to actually help you live a healthier life. Right. Yeah. And like for me, you know, I work in a, in a sales oriented role. So we meet a lot of clients. We go on a lot of meetings. We have roadshows. And yes, it gets hard. It gets hard when, you've, when you're on a roadshow and you may have five back-to-back meetings, you know, throughout the day. You may have breakfast in the morning and not eat until the nighttime and you, you know you haven't drank a lot of water it's you know you feel right. you feel terrible and yeah it gets it, it it gets hard however there are there are little things you can do that you can actually work around that i mean i take it to extreme sometimes i know the restaurants that i go to or the cafes that i go to beforehand if i'm going to a meeting and i can look at the menu and think okay oh, i already know what i'm going to order that's that's okay i don't have to order the uh the large greasy Snitchel and, and gravy and fries. You know, so that's can, out. That's out. <laughs> I can have the you know the chicken breast and the salad. Like that's 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 fine. That's that's just a simple thing you can do instead of the the chicken schnitzel and the gravy and the chips. The chicken breast and the salad. That's it's very simple. Mm. Swap to that. When I go out, for example, for a networking event, and there's unlimited alcohol <laughs> at this networking event, yeah. you don't have to go and have you know a thousand beers. You know, you can have a beer or two, right? But make sure, you know, you hydrate yourself, drink water and and do what you're supposed to do, which is network, not go there and, and drink. Because <laughs> right. uh, I know some people who go to these <laughs> networking events and they've come out of it absolutely plastered and they're like, oh, you know, that was a great networking yeah. event, but they've just they've just drank about 10 beers and, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it causes all sorts of trouble. So, yeah, I mean, look, the whole blog and the whole Suits and Kicks. So that's uh, the name of the blog. Is it... Suitsandkicks.com. Website. That's right, yeah. www.suitsandkicks.com. That's essentially what it, the website is. Um, it's still in, in its early phases. And, right. and what I'm trying to do now is essentially go out and speak to other people like me because what I found, and, I'm, and also I'm very fortunate enough to know people like me in the corporate world who are working pretty high in you know, investment bankers and um, you know, lawyers who are performing at the highest point of their careers who are also incredibly fit you know and you yeah. look at their lifestyles i know some people who are working 900 hour plus weeks and you look at them and you're like wow like you look like you're a, you're a triathlete right. <laughs> you know and you question you think how like how does this guy do it he's got a wife he's got two kids um he's working 100 hour a week yet he looks amazing and you know he eats right and so i'm going around and actually interviewing these guys and understanding how they do it because everyone's different the way I do it works for me. It may not work for you, Michael. It may not work for you know the next person. But I want to get an idea of their psyche. How how do they do it in their specific world, in their specific role? And I think that's incredibly interesting. You know. Yeah, really. And one of the things I remember when I was starting up the blog, I researched and I looked into some of the best performing men and women across all industries in the world. So we're talking like Tim Cook. At, at, at Apple, you know, Mark Zuckerberg, President Obama, you know, Oprah, these, these people who, you, you know, arguably are the best at what they do in their given field and what's their take on health and fitness. 
And I was... So do these people have... Te- is there an Oprah take, a Zuckerberg take on fitness? That's exactly... I mean, not people you think. Yeah, and that's what I thought, you know. Right. And, and, I, and I was doing the research. I was looking at the interviews that they did. For example, Obama. I, I, you know, I was reading articles on Obama who... I mean, look, if there's one person in the world who could say that, oh, mate, I don't have enough time for this, is probably the President of the United States, mm. right? <laughs> he could probably get away with an excuse saying, I've got no time. Do you mean the current president or? <laughs> the previous president. I mean, you know, Trump. Right. He, he, <laughs> we won't touch on Trump. But, um, you know, when he was, when he was, when Obama was at, at the helm of the presidency of the US, he allocated, you know, 40 minutes to physical health, whether it was a walk or basketball, he was a keen basketballer, about three to four times a week, right, before he started the day. And that got him going. That got him the energy going. That got him going for the day. So this is a guy who slept, I don't know, maybe four hours, five hours a day and was traveling around the world doing what he had to do, yet he still allocated that time for physical activity in his, in his diary. And then, like Mark Zuckerberg, he had an interview where he essentially, he essentially said that for him to perform at the peak of his ability at Facebook or, you know, at whatever he does, he needs to have energy. And how can he ever, ever be able to perform and do what he does if he doesn't have it? And for him to get it, what he does is he eats right. He goes for walks. He goes for jogs. He does everything in his power in order for his body to perform at the peak. So he's essentially treating himself like an elite athlete but within the corporate world, right? And what do elite athletes do? They fuel themselves right, they train their bodies right in order to perform at the peak. So he he looks at it like that. And I think that's how we should look at it. I mean, if, you, if you're going to be the best fund manager, if you're going to be the best lawyer or the best doctor, you need to have your body right. That's, you know, that's what I believe. You need to have your, your mind right, your body right. And it all comes down from the inputs, what you put into your body, and also the outputs, what you actually do to your body to help condition yourself. Yeah, so out of curiosity, what's a working day like for you? Like, what are you eating during the day? You hang out, you <laughs> just snacks in the Axios office that you Yeah, in the Axios office. I mean, we, we, I gotta say, we got a pretty good snack collection. <laughs> <laughs> it is, uh, it's always stocked up, it's always fueled up. And yeah, every day is a temptation. Let me tell you, I walk you past the kitchen and you see some chocolate biscuits and ginger nuts are a big thing in our office. So they're, they're ginger nuts. Ginger nuts. Yeah. What are ginger nuts? That's good. I've never had one, but they're a big thing. They're basically right. a biscuit which has a lot of sugar in it, really. Mm. <laughs> but me, I mean, look, my, my day is, is this. I mean, I, I bring my workout clothes, my gym gear to the, to, to the office, not knowing exactly when I'm going to train because it all depends on how my day goes. If I have a gap, um, like a 30-minute, 40-minute gap throughout the day, I'll quickly go to the gym and um, do what I've got to do, whatever I'm working out that day. Um, but if not, I'll train after work. And luckily, you know, gyms close pretty late, or 24-hour gyms now, so we can um, train after work. In terms of what I eat, it is pretty regimented. However, I do say I've been doing this for a while now. So, you know, people may look at what I eat and think, wow, this guy's crazy. Like I could never eat like that. What's an example? I mean, look, it's nothing. There's no secret. It's, you know, chicken breast, you know, veggies, rice, you know, minced meat sometimes. Like it's, it's, it's just whole foods, really. It's really whole foods. I don't, I actually don't eat a lot of processed foods. I actually don't eat any processed food now that I think of it. I'm pretty keen on, making sure I know what's in my food, everything that goes into it. So if I meal prep and I make it, I know what's in it. Um, I know how much you know meat I put in. I know how much 
carbs I put in it. And it helps me and helps my like give me peace of mind knowing that what, what's going in you know, in my body. Nothing wrong with going out and going to a, a salad shop or going to a cafe and you know, picking up something from there. That's fine. Um, I do that sometimes when I don't meal prep or I forget to meal prep. I don't have time to meal prep. But my only issue is there are... You know, there are a lot of cafes who they say, oh, look, here's some chicken breast, but what you don't know, they've just smothered it all in oil and they've said, yeah, look, this is a healthy option, but really, like, what are you eating? So that's why I like meal prep because I know what's in it. And and it's also convenience, to be honest. Like, I know, like, it's in the fridge. You know, I can be at work at my desk. It's like, bang, it's in the fridge. I don't have to think about what I need to eat for the day. It's just there. I can just eat it, check away the container, and that's it. (laughs) You know, it, it just helps me with my day as well. So, I mean, that's my take on meal prep, but I would definitely suggest everyone have a go at it. I'm not saying meal prep every single one of your meals, like some people do, but even if it's just one, two, three, three a week, which is just like healthy meals, like that helps. You know, that helps. You know, three healthy meals a week, four healthy meals a week, like it helps. It definitely saves you from getting your, the burger and fries at lunch, you know, after, you know, uh, after a tough morning or, or something like that or getting the, the schnitzel, fried schnitzel and, and gravy for dinner, you know, after a long day of work. So, you know, I definitely suggest you meal prep. Interesting. These are uh, the questions I've always wanted to ask you, Etty. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. So what else is uh, keeping you all at Axis busy? Well, look, I forgot to mention at the start um, of our conversation, Michael, a large portion of our business as well centres around the capital advisory piece. And when I say that, I mean, it is focused on the property space, the property and real estate space, where we have a select group of developers who we work with on all sorts of matters, um, specifically their financing needs. And, you know, financing is always arguably the most important point for any developer, you know, how they're going to fund a development. And it's interesting to see the sort of the the change of guard, so to speak, you know, the over the last year where the more traditional lenders like your big four banks have been holding back a bit from their lending activities. And obviously the the terms around their lending, you know, their lending has become a lot more strict. So what's happened is this the non-traditional lenders, the growth in the non-traditional lending space have just has just exploded. Over a year ago, we would say we've sourced most of the financing from the traditional big four banks. And over the last sort of six months, and I think it's going to be the same over the next six months to a year, we've sourced a large portion, probably over half of our capital financing to these developers from the non-lending space, right? Right. Um, and the terms kind of, there must be different terms, like probably more expensive, maybe less, more or less flexible. I'm not sure. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It probably is. borrow more though as well. I mean, what yeah, that's that's exactly right. I mean, the, for example, you know, pre-sale coverage. You know, right. For example, with with the Chinese influence in the Australian property market being you know held back a little bit. Obviously, the ability for you know Chinese investors to get capital out of China has held back. The pre-sale needs that the big four banks need are a lot higher than what they need from non-traditional. Lenders, lending space. So developers can go to the non-traditional lending space and structure a package that helps um, bypass that. So that's one example. In terms of the pricing, yeah, the price, like the cheapest source of capital will always be from from the banks, right? Right. They'll they'll always have the the, the cheapest source of capital. So you may be, a lot of developers 
may be in a in in a position to afford to pay, you know, a few basis points more or whatever it is, a few percent more in order to get their funding away. So that is something that they're looking into. However, a lot of them don't have a choice. <laughs> a lot of them, because of what's happening in the market, they they right. can't, they, they, you just can't go to the big banks and, and get the funding. You have to go to these non-traditional lenders. Mm-hmm. And what's that, what that has actually developed into is more funds. So you're starting to see... You mean more funds set up? Yeah, is a lot of yeah, debt-focused debt funds. funds. That's exactly right. right. That's exactly right. You're you're seeing a lot more debt funds becoming um, more prominent within the market. So that's a, and that's from a lot of different sources. You know, there are fund managers, you, you know, offshore fund managers coming in here. There are developers looking at starting up debt funds. Um, all sorts of um, financial institutions, um, even family offices. There are family offices out there who are starting up their own debt funds. I mean, they've been doing it for a while, like MES, especially specifically in the MES space, right? More syndicate syndicate sort of debt funds. But um, you're starting to see that a lot as well because they know that there's that gap now. You know, there's that gap where the banks used to service. So it's really an opportunity, right? That's so right. banks have stepped back. There's an opportunity for people to come in. That's exactly right. You know, how long is that going to, that opportunity is going to be there for? I don't know. I'm not, um, I wouldn't say I'm an expert in that, but there's definitely an opportunity for that for that now. Right. Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of kept us busy. And we're very fortunate at Axis that, we have the ability to access capital from a lot of different sources. So if the banks start holding back, we can access non-traditional lenders. We can access PE funds. We can access other fund managers for capital, you know, family offices. So we have the ability to to kind of move within the market conditions in terms of where to access capital for. Because at the end of the day, people will always allocate capital to something. It's just about finding finding where, right? Mm -hmm. So what has kept us busy now is finding more of these alternative capital providers for, for our developers. So why don't we wrap things up there? So Edgy, where can people find your Suits and Kicks blog? It's on Instagram as well, isn't it? Yeah. Or is it just web? Yeah, uh, no, it's both. So um, www.suitsandkicks.com and the Instagram is Suits and Kicks basically. And also Axios Partners. You know, our website's www.axiospartners.com. Um, all our details are on there as well. If, um, if there are any fund managers or any investors, you know, looking to um, have a chat. Great. Thanks so much. No problem. Thanks. I hope you enjoyed my chat with Etty Amager of Axios Partners, a firm that's doing quite a few different interesting things. If you have any comments or want us to talk about anything in particular on the next podcast, please shoot me an email. My email address is michael at frazzuscapitalpartners.com. Hope you have a great week.